Hello and welcome to The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. Each week, the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in finance take you beyond the numbers and hype right to the heart of the big issues of the day. Today, we're exploring the future of US-China engagement and, in particular, considering the potential impact on the relationship of a shift in the balance of power on Capitol Hill this November as a result of the US midterms. Our special panel of UBS experts drawn from the United States and in Hong Kong are here to unpack the complexities of this critically important dynamic between two economic powerhouses. We start with two voices from the UBS Global Wealth Management CIO, who we've heard from on this show before. Tom McLaughlin, Head America's Fixed Income, and Alejo Shevonko, Chief Investment Officer, Emerging Markets Americas. Tom and Alejo, welcome back. Good to have you with us once again on the programme. Tom McLaughlin, just to start off, first of all, just give us a bit of a background as to the starting point of this piece of, of research. Is the idea here fundamentally that November and what goes on there, particularly in DC, could be critical in terms of setting or resetting the very future course of the Sino-US relationship? I believe so. The US-Sino relationship is categorized by, by, at least from the US side, one where there is an increasing consensus uh, that the relationship is one where it's a bit more adversarial than it has been in the past, and that is not likely to change. The reason November is so important is that the composition of this of the Congress is likely to change and will constrain the Biden administration uh, in many ways. Most of President Biden's domestic agenda will have to effectively be put on ice uh, for the next two years under the assumption that the Democrats are going to lose control of the House of Representatives. This is going to narrow the Biden administration's focus quite a bit. But regardless, the temperature in Washington is such that both parties have become a bit more skeptical about the U.S.-China relationship than they have been in the past. Uh, A lot of what's happening right now on Capitol Hill is a function of the fact that the Democrats are uh, moving as quickly as possible on a number of different uh, things while they have control of Congress on the expectation they're going to lose at least one House, one chamber of Congress, that is the House of Representatives, and the Senate is still up in the air. So it's possible they could lose control of the Senate as well. That's a little bit less certain. Well, yeah, and I I guess the bigger picture, and this is almost to sort of take a step back a little, many of us expected to see something of a reset, perhaps, in terms of broader China-US relationships following the election of Joe Biden. You know, he was at pains to point out how he was different to what had gone before. And maybe from the sort of investment point of view, Alejo, if I ask you this, has some of that reset maybe not materialised? Have things not quite played out? Maybe how investors were expecting the direction of travel was going to be after Biden's presidential election success? I think, Tom, that's a fair characterization. We had a fairly hostile 2021 in terms of US-China links. And I'd say affairs between both countries have been carried out with an air of icy coexistence so far this year. But one of the key motivations behind the piece we put out is is the fact that one might get the impression in coming weeks that US-China relations might be improving. For a number of reasons, we've got some progress reported on a potential solution to the saga involving Chinese American depository receipts or ADRs. We've got some tariff on Chinese goods imposed during the Trump administration. Uh, Some tariff relief might take place soon on the hands of the Biden administration. And finally, 
some proposed US legislation perceived to be anti-China now seems quite unlikely to survive in the current Congress due to lack of agreement between Democrats and Republicans. So there's a positive trend that is building, which we think is unlikely to last. As uh, Tom highlighted, the balance of power in Washington, D.C. will likely shift towards the Republican Party after the U.S. midterms. A reappointed Xi Jinping in China will likely emerge emboldened from the Communist Party Congress in the second half of the year. So look, in our view, periodic disagreements between both countries are inevitable and frequent global market drawdowns during the more heated periods look likely in, in the years ahead. So don't be fooled by you know, things that might look better in the short term. They're likely to get worse as we look into 2023. Well, yeah. And Tom, let me bounce that back to you then. If things uh, we expect the direction of travel, not, you know, maybe it's flattering to deceive a little bit at present. Is it a question then of looking at uh, alongside things like the the ADR saga, which I was going to ask you about, which Elaha mentioned, looking at what else Congress has in its arsenal? You know, what else Congress is cooking up to try and sort of counter the rise of China? Or is that sort of narrative approach to this not actually helpful when we're trying to make sense of this space? No, I think the narrative is actually uh, spot on. Uh, this is a, a, a week of frenetic activity on Capitol Hill, and it will st- extend for probably another week or two. Time is the biggest challenge right now facing the Biden administration and the Democratic majorities. As you may recall, uh, conferees from the Senate and the House of Representatives have sought to strike a compromise to reconcile differences between two major, what we call China competitiveness bills, the first one was the U.S. Innovation and Competition Act, which people refer to as USICA, and the House version has a terribly long name, but the acronym is, is called the Competes Bill. And that conference, that attempt to strike a compromise was hitting a lot of uh, difficulty. Uh, Republicans uh, had rejected the House of Representatives version, uh, preferred its own version, which was more of a bipartisan bill than the House version. Do we need to talk about this issue of tariffs? Because that was very much one of the key words under Trump. Now, maybe he was slightly oversimplifying some of the complexities, the geopolitical complexities, to try and strike a chord with his base. We know that was one of his political strategies. But in terms of the relevance of tariffs in that landscape that you've just described, is it still important to sort of discuss the T word a little bit? Yeah, I think so. But it's important to note, I think, that the Biden administration has sent some mixed signals Uh, as to what the president intends to do regarding the suspension or termination of some of the tariffs that were originally imposed by the Trump administration. Take half a step back, the Office of the Trade Representative published a legal notice, which they were required to do actually in May, which effectively started the process by which the tariffs that were imposed by the Trump administration would be reviewed. And that's actually a legal requirement that they had to do. And what became apparent relatively quickly was that there was internal disagreements in the in the Biden administration as to whether or not tariff relief uh, was appropriate at this point. The Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, had repeatedly expressed a view that tariff relief would have a beneficial impact on the rate of inflation. That presupposes that a suspension or a termination of the tariffs would be very significant. The U.S. Trade Representative, Ambassador Catherine Tai, has always appeared to be less enthused about any sort of a suspension because 
I believe it's accurate to say in her view, it might undermine future trade negotiations with China. So you've had this internal disagreement inside the Biden administration as to exactly the scope of any suspension or relief that might be provided. What's happened at this point? And I should add that the Biden administration was supposed to come out with some sort of clarity on this issue as recently, you know, as, as say two weeks ago, perhaps even a week ago, and now we're still waiting for some sort of guidance. But it appears at this point that a partial suspension of some consumer goods together, and this is the interesting part, uh, with a simultaneously announcement of a new investigation under what we call the Section 301 tariffs, which is pertains to unfair trade practices. It looks as if Biden will follow the script he's followed for his entire political career, which is to basically try to strike a compromise. And the compromise might be, we're going to give some modest tariff relief on some consumer goods at the same time that we'll begin the process of a new investigation on in other areas. And this way, he can try to basically moderate the criticism he's likely to be subjected to by both his own party and by the Republicans for appearing, quote, soft on China, unquote, at the same time, you know, trying to provide some sort of tariff a relief to ease the rate of inflation prior to the midterm elections. And the problem and the fault with that argument is that the amount of tariff relief we're considering right now is under 5% of the actual aggregate value of the tariffs imposed by President Trump. So the impact on inflation is going to be marginal at best, and probably not material at all. So that may be one reason why we're seeing some lack of clarity coming out of the Oval Office, because it's the president naturally wants to provide some sort of a compromise here. And this is a this is kind of a, a subject and a topic which is quite difficult to, to strike a compromise on. But it may explain why there's been such delay in getting clarity on this issue. So Aloha, let me bring you back in here. What does all this mean for the canny investor then who's trying to make sense, trying to make sure that they're positioned to take advantage of some moves or to mitigate against other excesses? Does it fundamentally pose a problem if you look at, you know, maybe an investor saying, you know, should I continue to diversify and invest in both countries when there are all the kind of complexities that Tom's been outlying? I'm sure that there must be clients uh, who ask you that that question. What what do you say to them when they do? That is a central question, Tom. And I do think investors should be prepared for US-China relations to be tense for years to come. But in our analysis, taking sides from an investment perspective is not the right approach. Each country offers exposure to different economic drivers, different sectoral opportunities, and investors can, for instance, benefit from allocating capital into domestic consumer-focused companies within the U.S., within China. These firms are likely to provide more reliable returns than those exposed to, say, trade and cross-border business spending which, as you know, remains quite dependent on favorable political outcomes to drive performance. In addition, Tom, there is ample evidence of the relatively low correlation between Chinese assets and European, Japanese, U.S. assets. This reinforces the view that Chinese assets are a valuable diversifier in a global portfolio, allowing investors to improve risk-adjusted returns. Now, There are a number of concrete steps you can take to enhance your portfolio's resilience in a context of uh, relatively high tensions between the number one and number two economies in in the world. I'll mention just a few. Uh, Number one, you can aim to position for an era of security. I think it's become clear that we're entering a period 
in which governments and companies place a higher value on security and safety over, say, price and efficiency. This should support demand in a variety of areas, ranging from energy and food security to cybersecurity and more traditional defense spending. Number two, Tom, I'd say you can ride the way to net zero. Interestingly, both the US and China now plan to achieve carbon neutrality, the US by 2050, China by 2060. And in this context, I believe companies exposed to green finance, green transportation and energy efficiency are well positioned to gain from this trend. Third and last, I'd say you can optimize your exposure to Chinese assets. Within the universe of Chinese stocks, for instance, you should definitely consider H shares or those trading offshore China, but you should also contemplate holding A shares, those trading domestically. Interestingly, A shares would be less sensitive to a rise in US-China tensions, and they can still benefit from China's reopening from you know this COVID saga, as well as the fiscal and monetary stimulus that is taking place against the grain of the rest of the world where fiscal and monetary tightening is being conducted. In periods of rising concerns over US-China relations, having exposure to A shares could offer a more balanced risk-adjusted return profile for two portfolios. If we are minded that, you know, there will be increases broadly in political tensions in 2023, maybe for this in terms of US-China engagement, but obviously, you know, look at what's happening with the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine and so on. If political volatility is very much on the agenda, whatever the direction of travel, is it a question of investors better protecting their portfolios against those potential increases? Or do they just need to, is actually a reminder not to be reactive and try and shut out some of the white noise and stick to some of the fundamentals? Yeah, I, I think your uh, prior comment about this a broader narrative here is, is the way to approach it. And kind of following on to what Alejo was suggesting, we should expect the relationship between China and the United States to be one where there's a fair amount of tension. But it's also important to remember that both nations have a lot to lose by having that tension become more severe. President Biden tends to be less strident than his predecessor in the way he approaches foreign policy. Once November happens, we have the elections and the Democrats, again, are likely to lose the House of Representatives. At that point, uh, since his domestic agenda will be forestalled, he will have to spend most of his time on foreign policy. He'll, he'll also provide some executive actions in the domestic sphere, but by and large, he's going to focus entirely on foreign policy. So I think it's certainly his natural background to go ahead and try to strike a compromise. He's not going to be able to reverse the gradual increase in tensions that we've seen over the course of the last half decade, but he will go ahead and try to moderate and prevent it from becoming much more of a, a more dangerous issue. And so as a consequence, I think, again, following on Alejo's point, this is something where you have to expect China is rapidly becoming, it's certainly the second largest economy it may uh, transcend the United States within the next couple of decades. At that point, there are two major world economies and it's, it's probably not the best path to go ahead and choose one over the other, but to acknowledge the fact that they're both going to be important from the global perspective. And therefore, if you accept the notion that there's too much uh, interrelationship between the two countries to come to some sort of a 
a much more a conflagration of much more danger, then it's then it's appropriate to go ahead and invest as a means of diversification in each one. I fully agree with with Tom, and I'd say we're clearly entering an era of secularly higher geopolitical risk, and this will of course impact portfolios. The challenge here is that many investors might try to find an answer in, in home bias, in investing in things they, they know. But we actually think that's quite dangerous. And in our analysis, there's no better protection in this environment than that of geographic diversification and trying to mitigate home bias as much as possible. Alejo Chavonko and Tom McLaughlin. Next, let's cross to Hong Kong and hear from Eva Lee, Eva's head of Greater Chinese Equities. She focuses on individual stocks as well as thematic investments. Eva Lee, welcome to the programme. Good to have you with us too. We've been hearing some insights from the United States, from Alejo and from Tom. Let's talk a little bit from your vantage point where you are about what all this means for investors. What are some of the implications? Does it still make sense to diversify and invest in both countries? China will continue to solidify it as an economic hub, regional power. And then on the other hand, U.S. Uh, will continue to preserve its ascendancy in global welfare affairs. So I think there will be periodic disagreements. But on the other hand, the capital flows between the two countries will continue. And more importantly, China assets is a valuable diversifier in a global portfolio. If you look in the past history, you always find a certain cycle that China uh, will, you know, will give you a very good diversification benefit versus like a pure concentrated investment in the developed markets. Another thing lately was uh, everyone is looking at China will continue to stay accommodative on their fiscal policy and monetary policy versus the rest of the world tightening the monetary policy. So we, you have in the U.S. Or, or the other markets raising rates while China is going to stay accommodative. So this is also another example to show you that China can be a very good, you know, uh, providing you a good diversifying impact onto a global portfolio. And Eva, what's the best way for international investors to gain exposure to Chinese assets? We consider thematic investments approach is the optimal one. The fact is you always have, you know, China providing very focused uh, policy support onto certain industry. For example, 5G, for example, domestic semiconductor industry. So by investing in thematic approach, you can help investors to gain exposure to a certain set of stocks that may not have included into the well-known index. And you, in being an early mover, investing into this sector that was well protected and supported by policies. Eva Lee. And that brings us to the end of this edition of The Bulletin with UBS. Setting the agenda in the fast-moving world of finance each week here on Monocle 24. You can listen again and explore at monocle.com. That's where you can join the club too by subscribing to Monocle magazine. You can also follow this programme wherever you get your podcasts and discover more and find out how UBS can help you at ubs.com. This is The Bulletin with UBS on Monocle 24. I'm Tom Edwards. Thanks for listening.